Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Practice that we're doing here, especially on the, the first day for many of you, and even sometimes um, those who've been sitting for 10 days or so um, might feel this way too. It's It seems at times a bit mundane, just lifting your foot and putting it down, or sitting here and noticing the mind going off, or trying to open up to different experiences. And with a, a fair amount of talk about being open in the face of suffering, you know, that first noble truth. There's a lot of talk about suffering in this, these teachings. Um, sometimes we can forget that this is really a practice of happiness. This is a practice that develops and makes available true happiness in our hearts. So tonight I want to talk about how what we're doing is actually transforming suffering into happiness. The Buddha said that he taught suffering and the end of suffering. And a more positive way of saying the end of suffering, what's left when there's no more suffering in one's life? There's a happiness, there's an openness, there's a unity that, he said, is the greatest of all happinesses. We talked on the first retreat about the different foundations of mindfulness that these, this teaching, this meditation comes from, you know, the Satipatthana Sutta. Besides mindfulness of body sensations and of mind states and mindfulness of principles of reality, the second foundation of mindfulness is understanding the feeling tone of experience. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which is happening in every single moment. That's not bad that things are unpleasant or good that they're pleasant. It's just the way it is. Every moment, each experience has one of those three flavors. When we are not keen in our understanding, when we are acting out of habit, we react to those flavors with um, ways that create more suffering in our lives. And so when something is pleasant, we want to grasp it, get attached, and try to hold on to it. This is called grasping or greed. When something is unpleasant, we want to move away from it, contract away from it, push it away or strike out against it, somehow protect ourselves from feeling it. And that movement is called aversion or hatred, in its stronger sense. And when something is neutral, we generally have the uh, response of either spacing out or getting confused or having it be boring, which then turns into unpleasant very soon. And that confusion is what's often called ignorance or delusion. Those three responses are the roots of suffering in our lives. If you uh, are familiar with the, the law of karma, that's the root of all suffering. Greed or attachment, hatred or aversion, and delusion. Now, if there's a different response, 
one that is accompanied by mindfulness, we change the result dramatically from greed with understanding, with mindfulness, when there is a pleasant experience, rather than grasping at it, there's the possibility of opening to it without holding on. This is called non-greed. Non-grasping, non-attachment. When the experience is unpleasant, rather than pushing away in aversion, there's the possibility of opening up to that as well without the extra reaction, which exhausts us and throws us off balance, gets us confused. That is the response of non-aversion or non-hatred. And when the moment is neutral, when there is mindfulness, we meet it with understanding and clarity, and we don't get confused. And so that creates the response of non-delusion. And it just so happens, fortunately for us, that those are the three roots of happiness in life. To meet the moment with non-grasping, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, you are sowing the seeds for great happiness to result on a karmic level. So I want to talk about each of these three um, pairs tonight relating it to our practice. First, grasping. This is the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is attachment, is grasping. There is a truth that there is suffering in life because nothing lasts. And when we want things to last, there is pain. When we're holding on to changing experience, it creates pain and suffering. We move from craving, from a general wanting, to grasping when there's a clear object. And, ah, that's what I want. And it's very hard to let go. It's hard enough when we're trying to be mindful in this kind of an environment. It's exponentially harder when we are out in the world that most of us, that all of us live in, and that uh, most of us have just come from in the last week or so, where all the messages are saying happiness is about getting more. So go for it. You know, go for the gusto. And without tremendous support and having special conditions, we get swept up in those messages and in that habit of mind which we've been cultivating so uh, intensively for our life or lifetimes. I wanted to share with you something I, I shared on the first retreat that just beautifully sums up the predicament that we're in. There's a magazine ad called The Gold Shivers. Bear with me, people who heard this on the first one. It's a beautiful woman with gold all over her necklace, earrings, bracelet. The Gold Shivers. That electric excitement, that thrilling warmth, every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. And then on the back page, continues, what is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. <laughs> the only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. <laughs> That's, that's a heavy <laughs> message of conditioning, and that's just, you know, it's so 
graphic in that one that it's easy to see and laugh at, but that's what we are being fed continuously in our life. That's what makes us happy, what will make us happy. But the paradox is that it doesn't. All those gold shivers do, besides excite us, is make us feel more incomplete. And that grasping is actually very painful. I don't have it. I wish I could. What have you grasped at in the 11 days or the one day since you've been here? It's not any different movement of mind here than it is outside for a sweet meditation experience, for your room to be a certain way, for lunch to be a certain way, for the end of a meditation, for some kind of idea you have of what's supposed to happen, for somebody else around who happens to catch your eye. Mm. And when the mind creates something that it says, yes, that will make me happy, the grasping comes right away and we get lost. And all of a sudden, everything else is kind of in the way or a, an obstacle to what we really want. It's painful. Even when we have pleasant experiences, sometimes we can grasp when the idea comes, oh, well, what's around the corner? Maybe it could be next. And I share with you a Calvin and Hobbes. Maybe something wonderful, even better, could be next. It's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. First frame, he says with a big smile, Here I am, happy and content. Second frame, but not euphoric. <laughs> Third frame, so now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy. My day is ruined. Last frame. I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. <laughs> That's kind of what we do in our minds. Maybe the next thing will be even better. And then all of a sudden, this isn't good enough. I remember one um, three-month course. Was, I think it was my first three-month course. Uh, at Thanksgiving time, where they put out big feast. Right? And they used to really go over the top with six kinds of desserts and, you know, just food piled as high as you could imagine. And at this point in the retreat, it was you know, two months into the retreat, an extra slice of bread was a big deal. So you get to Thanksgiving and all of a sudden there's this feast. And I remember this meal. I was... I piled up, they, they encouraged us to pile up our plates. Just go for it. I guess to teach us some kind of lesson. Um, and I piled up my plate, following the instructions diligently, and there I was, you know, eating my mashed potatoes and wondering if there'd be the dessert that I wanted left when I got finished. You know. And I ate that meal faster, like about five times faster than I normally ate, and it was so unpleasant. It tasted great, but I was not there for the taste. I was busy thinking about the next thing. Isn't that funny? We can't even enjoy the pleasant often. Now, the opposite of this is letting go. There's a... Um, a statement, Ajahn Chah, he says, if you let go a little, you will have a little freedom. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of freedom. If you let go completely, you will have complete freedom, and your troubles with the world will come to an end. It takes practice to let go. But when we see it again and again, we can see for ourselves the, the power of that and the peace that comes from that. Here's a little exercise that, um, that I find useful. 
Just open up your hand, open up one hand, and put your other finger in, in that hand. And imagine that that finger is something very special, the greatest meditation experience you could want, or the Vipassana romance that you're trying to get out of your mind, or whatever it is that you're looking forward to or want to hold on to. Just imagine it's there right in your hand. Now close your hand around it and close it tightly because if you can squeeze it hard enough, you can keep it here. Okay, so squeeze tighter. It might slip out. Squeeze a little bit tighter. Come on. You don't want to lose that one. It's so good. Squeeze a bit tighter. Ah. And then just relax. Okay, enough. Just let go gracefully. Which feels better? The holding on to the sweet or the letting go? The thing is that once you let go, there's room for more. You're holding on to something that you can't really hold on to anyway, but we get tricked. The opposite of grasping or greed is non-greed, which put more positively is generosity or out in the world a spirit of service where you are coming from a place of fullness and giving out. And it feels really good, doesn't it? It takes some trust to be willing to let go, to know that you won't be impoverished, there'll be more, or there'll be some way that, uh, that things will work out. And as you trust and you see for yourself, ah, then you see the pain that, that's in holding on. And while we're here, we can practice letting go of thoughts, letting go of beliefs, letting go of what we think we need, and practice that spirit of generosity, of opening up. As we practice here as yogis, there is a spirit of generosity that we are uh, expressing as we contribute to the community, as we do our jobs in, in the kitchen or wherever our work meditation is, as we practice with sensitivity and kindness and come into the hall and express our appreciation for the Dharma, that is an act of generosity. And it can be done with that intention as well. You can do the same exact act of sitting down or doing your work meditation from a place of either, oh, I guess I have to do it. Or it can be done from a place of, ah, yes, this is my contribution to the community. Or this is, or my practice can be not only for myself, but for others. Anna was talking um, last night about doing it not just for yourself, but for others. This is from, from uh, Yoshal Kempo, who says about motivation, Everything depends on one's intention. One can work with anything and integrate it into the spiritual practice path through pure mind and a good heart always from the point of view of benefiting others. The very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, what's called bodhicitta. Whatever we might do besides that is secondary to that. We are not practicing for ourselves alone, since everybody is involved, is in included in the great scope of our perfectly pure motivation, meditation, and prayers. We talk about vast and profound teachings of Dharma. Without this goodness of heart, this unselfishness, it is mere chatter, gossip, and rationaliza rationalization. So you can 
come here and sit or do your walk and know that you are purifying yourself for the benefit of all beings. It's a wonderful way to, to practice. Generosity at once is the very act of letting go and it also is the acknowledgement of the interconnection that we all share. And so if we give our energy or our resources or our um, attention, there is that movement out that knows that there's a connection between us and it feels good. Especially if you're not doing it for an ulterior motive, like what am I going to get out of it? Then, if that's not really generosity, if you're doing it with that, you've just lost the whole motivation. But simply that movement of the heart out ah, is very opening. And the karmic result of generosity is abundance. Think how you are around somebody who's very generous. Probably different than around somebody who's a bit insecure with their possessions or their time, their energy. It elicits generosity back. The karmic effect is both immediate because it feels good when you share or when you're expressing generosity and it also has its results in the future because you are sowing the seeds for things to come back to you and also for the likelihood of that response to arise again later on. So it's very powerful. The Buddha listed it as the first of the paramitas of perfections, of the ten paramitas. He would teach generosity before he'd even teach meditation or virtuous conduct because it is something that people could relate to as an act of letting go. It's one of the three pillars, forces of purification on this journey. Dana, sila, bhavana. Dana, generosity, sila, virtuous conduct, bhavana, meditation. So it holds a very central place. And you can see, because it is the third noble truth, the ultimate letting go, opening into the unconditioned. The cause of suffering is grasping, the way through suffering is letting go. And every moment that we are mindful, we are cultivating that possibility. When we meet a pleasant experience without holding on to it, in a very real way, we are conditioning the mind to be able to let go. And it's, it doesn't mean pushing away. Oh no, I can't enjoy that. I'll get attached. That's a misunderstanding. Because to be mindful is to truly connect with the experience completely, to appreciate it. And when there's bliss or joy, to be with that too. But that line between appreciation and grasping is the difference between heaven and hell. When you're mindful of the pleasant, experiencing it fully, and then as it changes, which it inevitably does, moving into the next moment. Ah, here's a moment I've learned to let go. So the second now, non-greed or generosity, non-hatred. Have you noticed how aversion feels? It's unpleasant, isn't it? The Buddha talked about it like a hot coal when we are caught in our anger, a hot coal that we don't realize we can let go of. We get so contracted in that aversion, pushing away, and we can't see clearly. So it's the movement of the mind away from experience, contracting away from it. How have you experienced it here in the last day or days? Meditation experience that you didn't like? Maybe sleepiness? Maybe restlessness? maybe body discomfort, maybe an unpleasant storm that came through, maybe physical pain, maybe somebody around who bugs you 
the, the infamous Vipassana Vendetta, VV. The way they walk, the way they talk, the way they breathe. And they just are around you. They know where you are all the time. right? It's a wonderful opportunity to get to explore aversion. Because with a flip of attitude, that aversion can turn into kindness and love. What it takes is when you see the unpleasant moment, instead of contracting around it, to notice simply the unpleasantness of it and be willing to give permission for it to be just the way it is. Ah, this is unpleasant. Ah, perhaps you don't catch it in time and there's this contraction. Oh, let's explore this response of aversion. Let's learn from it right now. doesn't mean you have to turn off the switch and never get caught. If you can do that, I'd like to speak with you and find out what you're into. But every time you get caught is a chance to wake up. And that's what cultivates kindness. So it's really opening to an unpleasant experience with a friendliness, with an allowing a permission for it to be here the way it is. And then if you can go one step further, bringing a curiosity to it that explores, that investigates, ah, how does this operate? But that friendly attitude to the unpleasant is the, is the key component that changes it around. Because right in that moment, you're practicing metta. Sometimes it seems that um, this practice can be cold and dry and just looking at impermanence and suffering and the selfless nature. And uh, Sometimes it's we don't hear as much about the loving, heartfelt aspects. We, that's one reason why we do the guided metta each day, to remind you that, that it's, it's integral, it's inherent in the mindfulness practice. But a lot of Buddhist teachings are in a more wisdom-oriented framework. I wanted to read to you a passage from Ajahn Sumedho, who's just a wonderful teacher. He says, With the emphasis Buddhists place on reflection, mindfulness, and wisdom, the holy life might sometimes seem to be an almost unfeeling attempt to look at everything in very objective ways. Rather than feel things, perhaps we think we're supposed to see everything as a Nietzsche, Dukkha, and Anatta. That's how it might seem. But remember, the heartfelt experience of life is a loving one, so that love and devotion are not to be dismissed. And he goes on to say, Devotion is from the heart. It's not a rational thing. You can't make yourself feel love just because you like the idea of it. It's when you're not attached, when your heart is open, receptive, and free, that you begin to experience what pure love is. Loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, these come from an empty mind, not from a sterile position of just annihilating feeling, but from a heart that is not deluded, not blinded by ideas of self or others. When the heart is free from illusions of self, then there arises a loving quality in the pure joy of being. The pure joy of being. When we stop our doing and trying and fixing and creating, and we come to rest, there is simply the pure joy of being. When you think of it, isn't it a miracle that we're here alive? And we can know that we're alive and that we have all of the joys and all of the sorrows that make up life that we can 
open up to with wonder and awe, the pure joy of being, of life flowing through us, of awareness opening to the Dharma, to the, the unfolding of things. This is not a dry, sterile practice. I thought it was when I, some of you know, I come from a devotional orientation before coming to Vipassana. And then I heard this, these teachings and was completely sold on the practice. But it seemed a bit dry from the chanting and all the, the devotion and qualities of developing heart that I had been involved in. I remember on one retreat, it was my, my first longer retreat, and at some point, I was just watching my breath, feeling it, and the energy started to open up, and I felt like I was going to explode. I, I couldn't believe what was happening. All of a sudden, this energy, and I just felt like a thousand suns were inside. It might not happen to you, so you know, don't you can't can't sit around waiting for it to happen. But I remember going up to. Um, to the teacher saying, oh, what's going on here? I'm just trying to watch my breath and I'm just feeling like my heart is it's so full. And tears were coming down my face and he said, you see, you thought this was a dry, brittle practice? It's not. Sometimes it happens dramatically and much of the time it happens, it kind of sneaks up from behind. But almost consistently, almost every retreat, almost everybody's face glows towards the end of it. And it's a very wonderful, exciting, and precious thing to see, just this transformation over the the days from kind of putting in your time and being diligent and, okay, I'll do this to at the end, just the layers peel and the sense of openness and heart that is palpable in the room. It works. It really does. The opposite of hate is loving kindness. Sometimes it's harder to get in touch with the love than the kindness. And So I would really encourage you as you Spend your days here, especially when we do the guided metta, instead of trying to muster up the love, to just have a benevolent attitude of kindness, whether it's towards yourself or to others, and not have to force anything. And let your experience be however it is. You might have a a cold stone heart for that period or that day. That's okay too, because the metta brings up all of it. And it'll show you just what's in the way. It's a kind of cleansing process. Love is different than how we normally think of love in our world. Love is not contracting. The near enemy of love that most of the world thinks of when they hear that word is attachment. It feels good at times, but it's mixed in with some fear and contraction and holding on. And that is very different from the expansion of the loving kindness that we experience. That's not trying to fix or hold on to anything. For us to meet the moment, meet the unpleasant with loving kindness, requires some forgiveness, some some understanding that doesn't contract in blame, either blaming ourselves or blaming someone else or blaming the universe. Just some understanding. This is a natural unfolding. How can I deal with this most skillfully instead of blaming, saying this is wrong, and if I were running the universe, I'd do a much better job than this. 
And it's just a little flip of attitude, as I say, that can transform your response. I remember on one retreat, um, there was somebody who had a bad cough. And on this part of the retreat, in those days, in the middle of the three-month course, used to have us all sit around Zen style in the perimeter of the, uh, of the room. And it was just my luck that this guy sat next to me. Right? So he had this loud, irregular cough <coughs> that would happen anywhere from 20 seconds to you know, a minute and a half or so. It would go on. And we were going to be in that um, alignment for seven days. Okay. I thought I was going to go crazy by the first hour. I said, forget it. Oh, this, this guy's going to drive me out of my mind. Right. So I had to fi- figure out some way to deal with this. And what I did after a day or so of getting more and more tight was just see if when he coughed, I was mindful. I would use it as a mindfulness checker. Okay, So I'd be sitting there and then, <coughs> oh, I was mindful. Okay. 30 seconds later, <coughs> oh, I lost it. Okay, come on back. So every time... He, he was really an aid to my practice. The cough, if I wasn't mindful, he'd bring me back. If I was, ah, okay, I just marked it. And it was, it was great. As the days went on, his cough got better. And I was very glad for him, but in a way I kind of missed my little tool over there. How we relate to the moment is completely up to us. We have choice. There are different kinds of friendliness or loving kindness that we can cultivate in our life. There's the love or the loving kindness that comes when we feel a connection with others. It doesn't always have to be colored by attachment. Sometimes there can be a real deep purity of love. And when you are feeling that love, when you are in love, that other person has awakened the love in you. And you love the whole world, it seems. You ever notice how things don't bother you as much when you're in that? I don't know if you... It doesn't happen very often. I, I read an article where the, the hormones kick in for about 18 months. You're in a euphoria when you're kind of in love and when you're loving the world. But, you know, while it's there, have you noticed? You feel, oh, wow. And you appreciate things so much more deeply. The problem comes when we think that person is responsible for my love. And then we get frightened that they're going to change or that this feeling will change, which it will. But it's something to really be honored that we can open up those feelings in each other. There's another kind of love that goes beyond me and other, and that's love that we can feel for life, for the Dharma, for God whatever word you call it, for the mystery. In one of the um, lists, there's a list of uh, bases of power, idipadas, and there's one, uh, citta idipada, which I understand as being touched by the power of the Dharma and just falling in love with it and being being so... Uh, moved and transformed that it's like a moth flying to fire. And it compels you to go deeper and deeper. I've shared this story and probably a number of you have have heard it before, so I won't go into it, uh, about realizing how much I love the Dharma. We all love the Dharma. 
there's something that's called us here. Whether it's your love of truth or your honesty and sincerity that truly wants to understand and see a possibility of waking up. Whatever it is, we've been touched by it. And it's very important to honor and appreciate that love that we feel for the Dharma, for practice. There's even a deeper love than the love of the practice or the love of the Dharma. And that is when we are love, when we are the expression of that emptiness. By emptiness, meaning not a separation when the barriers lift between me and other and the love is just expressing itself through us. Then we are love. And the practice shows us this and makes it available when we see through this sense of separate self and the solidity starts to dissolve and the, the boundaries between us and the rest of the process start to fall away. As Nisargadatta says, wisdom tells me I'm nothing and love tells me I'm everything. We become connected to it all. And we have glimpses of that too, I think, in our lives, not just on retreat. Sometimes when we're out in nature and get intoxicated by the grandeur of it all and take a deep breath and feel life coming through us. And there's that sense of unity. That's a deep experience of love. We can also practice the loving kindness in a very systematic way. We can program our minds and our hearts. As we cultivate that attitude, it becomes more and more available to us. Each moment that we're mindful particularly when we're mindful in relationship to the unpleasant, to our pain or our difficult emotion or our thoughts. Every moment, we are opening to it in a friendly way. We are cultivating an attitude of loving kindness. And the karmic result of that is both immediate feels much better than contracting with aversion. And it also has its results in the future in the sense that there is a karmic result as one cultivates more loving kindness and the likelihood that that response will be elicited in similar circumstances is greater. So every moment is very powerful when we're mindful in relationship to the unpleasant. So that's generosity, loving kindness, non-greed, non-hatred. And then the last one, non-delusion. Delusion can be thought of as confusion, ignorance, not seeing clearly, and it leads to suffering. What is deluded? What are we not seeing clearly? Generally, three things. When we don't see clearly, when we're deluded, we take what is impermanent as being permanent. This is always going to be here. This is the way it is now. And we forget that it's impermanent. We take what causes suffering to be the cause of happiness. If I hold on to this, I'll be happy. If I get this, then I'll be happy. Not realizing that because it's impermanent, you can't keep it. 
And that movement towards imagined happiness is what creates suffering. And we take what is selfless to be self, to be fixed, to be contained, to be separate from the rest of the process. And we separate that ourselves out from that process. We believe that sense of self. And what that simply means is, in the meditation, identifying with our experience. That's the way we do it over and over and over. My awful meditation, my wonderful energy, my terrible situation. That is called identifying with the process. And we blame ourselves or we take credit so quickly. Hey, I'm doing it really well now. Or I'm really blowing it now. How do I get back on track? How do I fix this? What am I doing wrong? When we can let go of that blame or credit, that is the doorway to freedom. Like that I read yesterday. Just read it one more time. It's so beautiful. She says, What a relief not to feel so burdened by my pain, my fear, my doubt. Yes, even my happiness. It all just is and I, the vehicle, it flows through. We don't have to take credit or blame. It's a misperception. And it's a great relief, too. But that solidification of self is so quick, it comes on so instantaneous and we compare ourselves to others or how we did yesterday. I mentioned on the first retreat, the comparing mind, the judging mind, it's there until you're fully enlightened. It's one of the last things to go. What's called conceit in the Ten Fetters. Conceit. Seeing through the conceit of I am is the, the phrase that's often used by the Buddha in the sutta. The conceit of I am. And that includes putting yourself higher than or putting yourself lower than. Oh, no, not me. I couldn't do this really that good. I can't be a good yogi. I remember um, this, this saying by Trungpa Rinpoche. says, timidity is just another ego trip. Oh, no, not me. That's another stance of ego when it's just happening through you. The comparing mind. Have you noticed it since you've been here today? Have you noticed image? What are they going to think? Especially around meals. You know, that's a very social situation. I remember on one retreat, just really diving into the comparing mind. I saw that that's really the big heart of my, my problem, comparing and judging. And on one, um, one part of the retreat, I took this couplet from the Third Zen Patriarch, which is one of my favorite pieces of Dharma. And the couplet says, the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. That made sense to me. So I decided every time I saw a judging thought, I just tack on the first line. I just say, the burdens of practice of judging. I, I got the rest of it in my mind. And I go to lunchtime, and there, there would be, you know, oh, doesn't she think she's mindful? The burdens and practice of judging. Oh, I'm a real klutz now. The burdens and practice of judging. Or a third portion she's coming for. Burdens and practice of judging. And I would go through, honestly, I did this for about a week. 
and I went through every meal. I don't think I got through with less than catching it 50 or 75 times every meal. And after a while, I just you have to laugh at how strong the conditioning is. Oh, there it is again. There it is again. Okay. And as you see that, this is the way we've been cultivating our habits for millions and millions of, of times in this lifetime, let alone other lifetimes, you have to be a little bit lighter about it. At least I was. You might try that if you find yourself judging a lot. Take some time to count the judgments. Okay. Take a morning or an hour. <clears throat> or if you're really ambitious, take a day or two. When is the comparing mind most active for you? Start to notice it. At lunchtime, in the hall, if you feel you have to move, out in the walking. Yeah, that's a good one. Especially people who've just arrived and there are these 25 zombies that are you know, moving through. What does the mind do? Oh, God. I'll never get that slow. I just want you to know you can go very slowly and be on Mars in your mind. So it doesn't matter how slowly you go. What matters is your relationship to it. I've mentioned this, I'll mention it again. On one retreat, I was, you know, I like to go slowly. It just, it just feels, feels good once I get into a particular gear. And I'd be all by myself, and I'd be lifting, moving, placing. And then somebody would come into the room, the walking room, and there'd be a whole different reason for walking. Just lifting, moving. And after a while, I started to add another label, which was lifting, moving, looking good, looking good. <laughs> Looking good, lifting, moving, looking. It's humbling, but it's actually very freeing when you do that. When you see through that conditioning that usually catches us. It's so, so subtle, those movements of the mind. Non-delusion, the wisdom factor that sees clearly, sees through this sense of I. Who is this I that's getting all uptight, or that's trying to impress, or that's comparing? Who is this I that wants to have control when there was no control in the first place? And it can be a little unsettling when you can't find it, but actually, again, it's a doorway to freedom. And that wisdom factor changes what would seem to be frightening ideas of impermanence and suffering and no self into wholeness, into openness, into a sense of faith and confidence. Because what we see when we pay attention, when we look at impermanence, we see not only the fact that things have gone, that there's nothing to hold on to, but we see a continually creative universe. There's always something new. What we see in the face of suffering, when we open up to it, we see the possibility of real compassion. So we're not afraid of our suffering or others. What we see when we understand this sense of selflessness, of no self, is the interconnection that we all share. So the mindfulness is very comforting and very opening, illuminating, and brings great happiness. What non-delusion means is letting go of knowing letting go of figuring things out with our mental mind. 
There's a line in the Third Zen Patriarch, it says, Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. It, again, takes a little bit of trust, a leap of trust, to let go and see what's here. In order to have an insight, in order to have an experience of, aha, it means that you opened up to the moment in a fresh way without analyzing and figuring out. I'll read a few things from um, the first, that I read on the first retreat. This is just a beautiful, again, uh, spontaneous understanding from somebody, a yogi who was on a retreat a year ago. It was her first retreat, and she had a really hard time for a lot of it, but understood by the end how she was creating so much problem for herself. And she says, the one thing that is indelible in my brain is remembering you don't have to figure it out. That would not ever register in my brain as an option before. Yesterday, I was walking and struggling in my brain, thinking round and round, and this voice came into my head that said, you don't have to figure it out. And I stopped and closed my eyes and asked myself, what is true right now in this moment? And what was true was the rising and falling of my breath and various body sensations coming and going. And the rest will balance itself out in its own time, I thought to myself. And I resumed my walking. What a revelation. When we can let go of our knowing to see what's actually here, that's where there's refuge. The refuge is in the awareness, in the present moment. And this is how the Dharma reveals itself to us. It's mysterious. It's here every moment just saying, come, see for yourself. Every moment that we're mindful, which means not identifying with our experience as being mine, but simply this flow of events, just seeing the process happening through us is a moment of non-delusion, is a moment of wisdom. And it has very strong karmic result, both in the immediate experience, because you're free of that contraction of blame or credit. It feels good not to identify with it. And in future, because the karmic result of those moments of mindfulness is wisdom to develop and also the likelihood that you will meet other moments with mindfulness. So this is how we are transforming suffering into happiness, both now and in the future. At each moment that we bring a mindful awareness to our experience, we are cultivating non-greed, generosity, ability to let go, non-hatred, opening up with a spirit of loving-kindness, and non-delusion, seeing clearly the nature of experience. And then we understand who we really are. I'll just close with a passage from the Buddha. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it can be free of the attachments that visit it. This 
the noble follower of the way really understands, so for them there is cultivation of the mind. This is what we're doing together. So let's sit for a few moments and cultivate. Without any trying, without any straining, simply let your awareness rest in this moment. This talk was given by James Barris at Insight Meditation Society on April 18, 1996. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.